Chapter 1 of Book 5 of Les Miserables, Volume 2, by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Al Dano. Les Miserables, Volume 2, by Victor Hugo. Translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. Book Number 5. Les Miserables. Chapter 1. The Zigzags of Strategy An observation here becomes necessary. In view of the pages which the reader is about to peruse, and of others which will be met with further on, the author of this book, who regrets the necessity of mentioning himself, has been absent from Paris for many years. Paris has been transformed since he quitted it. A new city has arisen, which is, after a fashion, unknown to him. There is no need for him to say that he loves Paris. Paris is his mind's natal city. In consequence of demolitions and reconstructions, the Paris of his youth, that Paris which he bore away religiously in his memory, is now a Paris of days gone by. He must be permitted to speak of that Paris as though it still existed. It is possible that when the author conducts his reader to a spot and says, In such a street stands such and such a house, neither street nor house will any longer exist in that locality. Readers may verify the facts if they care to take the trouble. For his own part, he is unacquainted with the new Paris, and he writes with the old Paris before his eyes in an illusion which is precious to him. It is a delight to him to dream that there still lingers behind him something of that which he beheld when he was in his own country, and that all has not vanished. So long as you go and come in your native land, you imagine that those streets are a matter of indifference to you, that those windows, those roofs, those doors are nothing to you, that those walls are strangers to you that those trees are merely the first encountered haphazard, that those houses which you do not enter are useless to you, that the pavements which you tread are merely stones. Later on, when you are no longer there, you perceive that the streets are dear to you, that you miss those roofs, those doors, and those walls are necessary to you. Those trees are well beloved by you, that you entered those houses which you never entered every day, and that you have left a part of your heart, of your blood, of your soul in those pavements. All those places which you no longer behold, which you may never behold again, perchance, and whose memory you have cherished, take on a melancholy charm, recur to your mind with the melancholy of an apparition, make the holy land visible to you, and are, so to speak, the very form of France. And you love them and you call them up as they are, as they were, and you persist in this, and you will submit to no change, for you are attached to the figure of your fatherland as to the face of your mother. May we then be permitted to speak of the past in the present, that said we beg the reader to take note of it, and we continue. Jean Valjean instantly quitted the boulevard and plunged into the streets, taking the most intricate lines which he could devise, returning on his track at times to make sure that he was not being followed. This maneuver is peculiar to the hunted stag. 
on soil where the imprint of the track may be left. This maneuver possesses, among other advantages, that of deceiving the huntsman and the dogs by throwing them on the wrong scent. In venery this is called false reimbushment. The moon was full that night. Jean Valjean was not sorry for this. The moon, still very close to the horizon, cast great masses of light and shadow into the streets. Jean Valjean could glide along close to the houses on the dark side and yet keep watch on the light side. He did not, perhaps, take sufficiently into consideration the fact that the dark side escaped him. Still, in the deserted lanes which lie near the Rue Polivaux, he thought he felt certain that no one was following him. Cosette walked on without asking any questions. The sufferings of the first six years of her life had instilled something passive into her nature. Moreover, and this is a remark to which we shall frequently have occasion to recur, she had grown used, without being herself aware of it, to the peculiarities of this good man and to the freaks of destiny. And then she was with him, and she felt safe. Jean Valjean knew no more where he was going than did Cosette. He trusted in God as she trusted in him. It seemed as though he also were clinging to the hand of someone greater than himself. He thought he felt a being leading him, though invisible. However, he had no settled idea, no plan, no project. He was not even absolutely sure that it was Javert, and then it might have been Javert without Javert knowing that he was Jean Valjean. Was not he disguised? Was not he believed to be dead? Still, queer things had been going on for several days. He wanted no more of them. He was determined not to return to the Gorbeau house. Like the wild animal chased from its lair, he was seeking a hole in which he might hide until he could find one where he might dwell. Jean Valjean described many and varied labyrinths in the Mouffetard quarter, which was already asleep, as though the discipline of the Middle Ages and the yoke of the curfew still existed. He combined in various manners with cunning strategy, the Rue Sancier and the Rue Copeau, the Rue du Patois Saint-Victor and the Rue du Puits l'Ermite. There are lodging-houses in this locality, but he did not even enter one finding nothing which suited him. He had no doubt that if anyone had chanced to be upon his track, they would have lost it. As eleven o'clock struck from the Saint-Étienne-du-Mont, he was traversing the Rue des Pontois in front of the office of the commissary of police situated at number 14. A few moments later, the instinct of which we have spoken above made him turn round. At that moment he saw distinctly, thanks to the commissary's lantern which betrayed them, three men who were following him closely pass one after the other under that lantern on the dark side of the street. One of the three entered the alley leading to the commissary's house. The one who marched at their head struck him as decidedly suspicious. "'Come, child,' he said to Cosette, and he made haste to quit the Rue Pontois. He took a circuit, turned into the Passage des Patriarches, which was closed on account of the hour, strode along the Rue des Lépis de Bois, 
in the Rue des Arbalètes and plunged into the Rue des Postes. At that time there was a square formed by the intersection of streets, where the college Ronang stands today, and where the Rue Nueve Saint Genevieve turns off. It is understood, of course, that the Rue Nueve Saint Genevieve is an old street, and that a posting chase does not pass through the Rue des Postes once in ten years. In the thirteenth century, the Rue des Postes was inhabited by potters, and its real name is Rue des Postes. The moon cast a livid light into this open space. Jean Valjean went into ambush in a doorway, calculating that even if the men were still following him, he could not fail to get a good look at them as they traversed this illuminated space. In point of fact, three minutes had not elapsed when the men made their appearance. There were four of them now. All were tall, dressed in long brown coats with round hats and huge cudgels in their hands. Their great stature and their vast fists rendered them no less alarming than did their sinister stride through the darkness. One would have pronounced them four spectres, disguised as bourgeois. They halted in the middle of the space and formed a group like men in consultation. They had an air of indecision. The one who appeared to be their leader turned round and pointed hastily with his right hand in the direction which Jean Valjean had taken. Another seemed to indicate the contrary direction with considerable obstinacy. At the moment when the first man wheeled round, the moon fell full in his face. Jean Valjean recognized Javert perfectly. End of Book 5 Chapter 1